Have a seat, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 19 this morning, first seven verses of Acts chapter 19. I would like to start this sermon with a children's book proposal, so let's pretend that you're the publisher of a children's book, and I'm meeting with you to pitch an idea, because that's what I want to do. I want to pitch a children's book idea to you this morning. The working title, which I know is not a good title, the working title is The Caterpillarist or Caterpillarism. And the, the, the book is about a guy who is isolated from everybody else. He lives in some remote mountain, let's say, and uh, he really doesn't have access to any information besides his own kind of observations of things. He doesn't have an internet connection. He doesn't have a library. He's a hermit. He never sees anybody. But one of the things that he got really turned on to at one point early on in his life was he wanted to, he started noticing caterpillars. And he got super into caterpillars and spent days and weeks studying caterpillars. And so in some ways, based about the amount of time that he spent studying caterpillars, based on like his interest and his passion for it. This guy is like the world's foremost authority on caterpillars. But there's one problem. In all of his careful observations, in his journaling and his studying of caterpillars, he has missed a particularly vital piece of information. You see, when he sees a caterpillar go into their cocoon, he thinks that they have died. And so his whole kind of knowledge set about caterpillars is, is deeper than most people's, but also more fundamentally broken than even something a six-year-old would know. Because he actually thinks that this thing lives this life cycle for a few months and then kind of wraps itself in its own tomb and dies. And what he does, because he loves caterpillars so much, is he gives them you know, a proper Viking funeral every time he sees one of them die. You know, and so he, he carefully peels the, respectfully peels the cocoon off of the tree or whatever and throws it into a fire and like salutes and says a prayer over it and so on and so forth. Uh, that issue of caterpillarism is something that is just like a part of what it means to be a human being. This is actually something we all struggle with. We struggle to see the various desires and gifts and good things that God has placed in our lives we struggle to follow the breadcrumbs and see that these things are meant to transform into love and worship for Jesus Christ. Uh, what we're going to be seeing over the next several weeks is just various forms of caterpillarism, various ways in which people kind of get stuck seeing a good thing as sort of ultimate, never seeing that good thing as this is something that is meant to transform into an even better thing. And that's what we've got going on in our text today in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Uh, it, it, and it happened, verse 1 says, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, nope. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. The folks in our text are caught up in a particular form of caterpillarism, and that is related to the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a good man. Jesus actually says there's none better than John the Baptist. And it's hard for us because of the way we read the Bible and because of the information we're given in the Bible, it's hard for us to completely understand how powerful and influential his ministry was in his day and age. He was exceedingly popular with the people. Jesus actually uses that fact to great effect in some of his questioning with the Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth. And he was, John the Baptist was, like a legitimate gift from God to the people. The people that Paul is encountering in our text um, are missing the most important thing about John, just like, just like our caterpillarist is missing the most important thing about caterpillars. He's missing that John is sort of the larval stage of the gospel. He's missing that John the Baptist is meant to transform, the ministry of John the Baptist is meant to transform into the ministry of Jesus. So they're kind of stuck, kind of stuck at a particular stage. God's doing something, he's working, but they don't have all the things figured out. They don't know that John the Baptist was meant to lead people to Jesus. Well, the closest um, correlation that we would find in our day and age, or one of the closest, would be um, this idea of the cultural Christian. And I would say that these are half-baked converts, or caterpillar converts, or converts in a larvic stage. There's something going on there, but they have not yet been fully transformed. So as I read this text in Acts 19, one through seven, I thought, well, what, what's the equivalent of these folks in our day and age? And one of the most obvious equivalents it occurred to me was this notion of the so-called culturally Christian. There are millions of people like this in our country. There are millions of people like this in the world, and there are so many of them that we have a name for them, you know, the cultural Christian. What is, let's define, what is a cultural Christian? So I looked around for all sorts of definitions, and actually, I thought the Wikipedia definition was the best one. Uh, and, and the Wikipedia definition of a cultural Christian is, is that they adhere to Christian values, appreciate Christian culture. As such, these individuals usually identify themselves as culturally Christians that are often seen by practicing believers as nominal Christians. This kind of identification may be due to various factors, such as family background, personal experiences, and the social and cultural environment in which they grew up. So cultural Christian is something less, by definition, something less than a full convert who appears in some ways to be a disciple. And that's the correlation I see in our text, I see with our text. These individuals appear to Paul initially to be disciples. Disciples of what exactly? Well, they, are, they have been caught up in the movement of God to a certain point, but they're not all the way there yet. Half-baked convert is not necessarily, I don't mean that in a negative sense at all, as you'll see in a minute, but that's sort of what we've got here, and that's sort of what the cultural Christian is. There's this joke that 
Jay passed on to me actually last night, and I rushed to my computer to incorporate this into my sermon. It was as if God delivered the perfect story for my sermon. And, and the story, the joke is, is a squirrel infestation has overtaken all the churches and synagogues in a city. This is something that hits a little close to home. Uh, <laughs> back during, uh, back, back, I don't know, like two years ago, I was actually recording a video in the church teaching something by myself. And I, had a, and, I, and I thought a squirrel dropped out of the ceiling on me, and I had a total spaz-out moment on the camera. And uh, I d- quickly deleted that. that <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Doesn't exist. But it was, I think I showed my family. It was a pretty legitimate spaz-out moment. Anyway, the story goes that, 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 that squirrels had infested all of the local churches, and each of the local churches had their own ways to deal with it. The Presbyterian Church called a meeting to decide what to do, and after much prayer and consideration, they concluded that the squirrels were predestined to be there and that they should not interfere with God's divine will. The Episcopalians tried a much more unique path. They set out pans of whiskey around the church in an effort to kill the squirrels with alcohol poisoning, and that sadly turned out to produce a bunch of drunk squirrels who could do even more damage than sober squirrels. Not much was heard from the Jewish synagogue. They took the first squirrel and circumcised him, and none have appeared since. (laughs) But the Catholic Church came up with a more creative strategy. They baptized all the squirrels and made them members of the church, and now they only appear twice a year on Christmas (laughs) and Easter. And that's kind of the the way that I have jokingly, and I I, I promise you, not condescendingly, but just jokingly referred to like, what is a cultural Christian? I call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only, you know. Uh, This this view of a Christian who isn't a Christian, uh, this view of a person who is halfway down the path to conversion, or they've started the path to conversion, but they're just not there, that's what our text is showing uh, and that's actually really relevant to our lives because the truth is, is we're surrounded by people like this. Now, I've heard lots of sermons and read a few books on this idea of cultural Christianity, and for the most part, when the church talks about this, it is usually with a negative light. And we'll get into that more as we proceed. But what's unique about this text, I think, not really unique exactly, there are other texts like this, is that this idea of a half-baked convert is seen to be rather better than a non-baked convert. In other words, there's a, there's a, a bit of a positive spin, positive view on this situation, and I think rightly so. Uh, the thing you need to understand is that these cultural Christians come from generalized movements of God in the world. These folks came about as a sort of byproduct or an artifact of a very powerful, a very uh, known ministry through John the Baptist. And so they are, they're not all the way there, but, but they are a consequence of something God did in the world. Does that make sense? They're, they're, they're a consequence of something God did favorably, right, in the world. God's movement through John the Baptist, had a hand in creating the folks in our text and getting them to where they are at this point. Now, you need to understand that God has been moving. And again, this gets really down to, are we seeing, are we seeing history optimistically or pessimistically? You know I see it optimistically. 
God has been moving through the church at large over thousands of years, and particularly in the West, and it has produced this phenomenon we now call cultural Christianity. There's a British historian named Tom Holland. I'll pause for the young people to whisper about Spider-Man, uh, who, who is kind of on the road to a, a bit of an intellectual, I would say, at the very least, an intellectual conversion. Like most uh, Western liberals, Tom Holland understood the Enlightenment, the move away from religion, to be the real furnace of Western civilization. But he was actually challenged by someone to study this further, and so he did, and he studied it honestly with intellectual integrity and so forth, and he really quickly decided, no, no, the Enlightenment is not the furnace of Western civilization. Christianity is, and it always has been. And so he says that the values and assumption of Christianity are like dust particles in the air, so tiny that we can't see them but which are breathed in and absorbed by all of us every day. And so the truth is, is that we live in a world that is far, far more Christianized than we realize. And that even people that we might think are radically far off from God are walking around with presuppositions that came to them because of our shared Christian heritage uh, the work that God has been doing in the world for quite some time. So even if someone were, say, to take the word love or equality and pursue sinful aims under those banners, the very notion that they value these things the way that they do is a byproduct of God's work in the world through the church for a very long time. So I think we've had a lot, plenty of glass-half-empty discussions of the reality of cultural Christians but I think this text invites us to have, at least partly, a glass-half-full perspective, not diminishing any of the negatives. Next week, I'll be talking about a biblical take on Christian deconstruction. So we'll talk about some of the negatives next week. But this is certainly an invitation by God, one that we often need to accept, to see his work in the world with a sense of optimism and gratitude and rejoice over what he's doing, not only in this broad thing, but also in the individuals that are actually, you know, in our lives. Uh, our text kind of gives us an invitation to be reminded that God's been doing a lot that we don't necessarily see. And that thing that he's been doing, the things that he's been doing are actually quite helpful to his work in individuals, even if it's not a complete thing. So uh, I came across something that uh, is from a wing of Christian literature that I normally wouldn't read, kind of the church growth side of things, but there was a gentleman named Ingalls, and he came up with this thing they call the Ingalls scale. And I want to show this to you. So what he did was he broke down kind of all the steps that are involved for a person to come from, you know, kind of a baseline or, or, or near baseline of faith, awareness of a supreme being, no knowledge of gospel. And then he just started trying to list, like, what would be the next stage after that? And what would be the next stage after that? And so on. So you start at the bottom, this negative eight, and you say, well, this is kind of the beginning of the Ingalls scale. It's someone that has an awareness of a supreme being, but no knowledge of the gospel. And the truth is, is that uh, Romans 1 kind of tells us that this is probably where most people are 
whether they're denying it or not. This is probably where most people are. And then you just see like these things that happen in a person's life all the way leading to a new birth. Now, two things about this. One, as soon as you try to do something like this, you're wrong because uh, there are so many exceptions and there are so many times when, when three of these things happen at once and so on and so forth. So this sort of, this sort of thing has limited utility. Number two, another, another qualifier. It depends on the kind of theology you're bringing to this. So for instance, if you're Charles Finney or an Arminian, you're just seeing this almost like you would read a sales, a how to sell cars manual, you know, if you became a new car salesman. Like you're seeing this as an extremely kind of man-centered, okay, I've got to get this person to this next level and then they're here and now I've got to get them. They're a number four, but I've got to get them to a number three and so on and so forth. But how would John Calvin read this and would he disagree with it? And I don't think he would. And I think he would say, God did that, God did that, God did that, God did that. And this is what I want us to see. And this is why I think it's valuable to look at this for a second. And that is just to understand that when we encounter someone who is a cultural Christian or other things, like chances are, if we, are, if we have a mind of gratitude, if, if, we have a, if we have an optimistic perspective on God's work in the world, we will be able to say, this person has already moved from where they were closer to what we would call new birth, conversion, so on and so forth. And then we would say, and that's God. God's at work. You see, every single step of this scale requires the God of the universe through his providence to conduct a exceedingly complex symphony of instrumentation to help a person move from this point to 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 this point, so on. Like, it's incredible to think that God sometimes has given a sunset in a particular point for a guy named Dale to move from number nine, who's not on the scale, to number eight. You understand what I'm saying? Like, God's doing this. God's at work in people's lives. And the, there is a negative side to cultural Christianity, to be sure. But it's also true that there's a really positive thing going on here that if we have eyes of faith, we will see. This problem of not seeing God at work, that's not a problem in your life at all, is it? That's not something you struggle with at all, I'm sure. Like, this is a real problem for us. It's a real problem for us to see all that God has done, to see what God is doing. Seeing clearly is a big part of Jesus' command in John chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there real quickly. We'll be back in Acts 19 in a moment. But John 4.35, Jesus says, Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Uh, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Just a few things to understand about this text. Firstly, Jesus had just finished saving the woman at the well and many others in her village. Secondly, 
the woman at the well was actually quite religious. Don't get, this is key, this is a key to just like living a peaceful life, a, po- a fruitful life. Don't get confused by someone's standards for themselves when they don't match up with their ability to live out those standards. Don't, don't write that off as, don't use the extremely cynical, modernistic use of the word hypocrite to just write people off because they have one standard and they're not able to live up to it. Where did that standard come from? And why hasn't God allowed them to live up to it? Because he's at work. God's at work in people's lives. So Jesus had just, when he says this, Jesus had just led a group of semi-religious, half-baked converts, which is exactly how Jews would have seen Samaritans. He had just led a group of semi-religious, half-baked converts to full saving faith. And he tells the disciples, look at the fields. They're actually entirely white with harvest. And then he says, other people have done the work. Other people have planted the seeds. And all you have to do now is go into the field and reap what was planted a long time ago. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. Now, this is exactly where Paul found himself in Acts Acts 19. This is exactly where Paul found himself. John the Baptist had labored, and now Paul had entered into his labor. Paul actually knew, knew no other form of ministry than to enter into the labor of others. Whatever Paul meant when he said to not build on another man's foundation, he did not mean I want to go somewhere and enter into a field where no one else has ever labored. Every strategy of Paul's ministry involved entering into the labor of others. When he went to the synagogues, almost always first, in any town he would go to, Paul was entering into the labor of the patriarchs and the prophets. Even when Paul went to pure pagan environments, say in Acts 14 or Acts 17 in particular, He entered into the labor that God had been doing before in their lives by feeding them and giving them rain and so on. He even entered into the labor of secular poets that God had given some knowledge of some bit of the truth. All all the ministry Paul did involved walking into situations that God was already working in and having eyes to see what God had already done amongst that particular people. And so regarding cultural Christians, I'm telling you, there is a glass half full perspective. God has already begun working in their lives. There's already some movement toward ultimate conversion. All we have to do now is realize that God has been working for thousands of years through his people to prepare hearts to make the field ripe with harvest. That book where the Ingalls scale appears, the book's title is, um, What Has Gone Wrong with the Harvest? And the answer to what has gone wrong with the harvest is, we just don't see it. We just don't see the harvest. And this is the problem that Jesus is addressing in John 4. It's not four months from now, it's now. There are people everywhere 
whom God has been working in through other people for thousands of years, perhaps even. And the fields are ripe with harvest right now. Now, how do we miss the harvest? We're going to get back into our text in Acts 19. How do we miss the harvest? Well, two ways. One, we can see something that isn't really there. All of the negative talk about cultural Christianity is rooted in addressing this error. And that's the error of hearing Patrick Mahomes thank God uh, after winning a game and saying, he's a Christian! (laughs) It's the error of going too far, of saying these similarities to what I believe mean that they are the same, mean that the, the fact that there's some baking going on means they're fully baked. And actually, the text is written in a way that suggests that this could have been a mistake that Paul could have made. Uh, The text is written in a way that, this is how a commentator says it, the correct explanation of the passage is that Luke has told the story from the standpoint of the principal actor. Paul met some people who appeared to him to be disciples. And this is going to happen. It's going to happen that we'll, we'll talk with someone, and initially, there will be some appearance that perhaps this person is actually a full-blown, regenerate disciple of Jesus. And one way we can miss the harvest is by assuming, is by looking at people and assuming they're already harvested when they aren't. Now, the other way that we miss it is to focus on who they aren't rather than who they are, or to focus on what they aren't rather than what they are. The, the idea would be, you look out into a field full of grain and say, yeah, but that's not bread. That grain thinks it's bread, but it's not. That grain is self-deceived. <laughs> that grain has false assurance of being bread. It's like, it's a lot closer to bread than it was six months ago. Yes, I agree with you. It's not bread. It's also not just dirt. <laughs> And if God hadn't done stuff, it would just be dirt. And this is the way I think that we, our particular little tribe, would be most likely to miss the harvest. Is to focus so much on what they aren't, on what hasn't happened, that we forget all that has happened in their lives. To focus so much on, well, that's just not bread, We forget, it's like, yeah, it's also not dirt, and it should be, based on my understanding of total depravity, that should be dirt. But it's not. It's wheat. It's in between. It's in a liminal stage. So how do we practice, how do we interact practically with cultural Christians with a kind of optimistic realism that the Bible invites us into? Well, I think one way to think about this is just to use the same conceptual lens you hopefully use on your own children. We're going to be done here in a little bit. We're going to talk way longer than our husbands want us to. No. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be done with worship. We're going to stand around. We're going to talk. Then we're going to go home. And when we go home, a lot of us are going to have little three-foot cultural Christians running around in our home. Right? Like, this is a fundamental part of Christian parenting. If you can, hopefully you view that correctly. So the wrong way to view that would be, 
a little kiddo has, you know, some morality and you're like, he's a Christian. The, another wrong way to view that would be like, you know you're not a Christian. <laughs> like just, just overly, overly po- focusing on what they aren't instead of celebrating what God has already done. So I think most of you do this very well or have done this well if your kids are older. You know how to look at something and say, it isn't what it will be, but boy, it isn't what it could be either, right? You know how to do this. Most of you actually know how to look at people this way because this is how you look at your own kids. Well, this is really the same call that the Bible gives us to look at people who are not Christians, but whom God is working in and say, you know, these kids are, 1 Corinthians 7, these kids are sanctified in a way because they're in my home. They're not saved exactly, but they have been uniquely blessed to have access to the gospel and to hear the gospel and to see the gospel living out. If you use that very same lens with your neighbors, it more or less holds up because your neighbors live in a blood-bought world that Jesus Christ, see, God came to earth. Very momentous, it's a big deal. Changes everything. And he lived and he died and he rose again. Like, it, everything's different now. And so you look at your neighbors and say, you live in a world that exists after God came here and lived among us and died and rose again you live, in a, you live in an AD world. To look at those people with hope and say, yeah, you're not what you should be, but you're also not what you could be. And to say with some gratitude and, and godly discernment, boy, God is, God is at work in your life. Even, even with your inability to live up to your own standards, God is at work in your life. That marriage problem, do you know how many people will will uh, get married, have almost no marriage problems, die and go to hell. Plenty. That marriage problem, that's a gift from God. That, that rebellious kiddo, that's a gift from God. Your, your affection for freedom, that's a gift from God. It's a caterpillar. It's not what it should be. I gotta help you see that. But the fact that that affection, that desire the fact that the three transcendent virtues, truth, beauty, and goodness, exist in a person's affections is a good sign. It's not salvation, but God's probably up to something. So the one thing is, is like, how do, how do we practically interact with them? I would just encourage many of you, because this is the thing you do know and you do well, you just view them the same way you view your kids. It's like you're growing up in a world that God has decided to invade and die for, and you have exposure to Christian witness, and I'm assuming that God's working in your life. Number two, straight from the text, ask good questions. I've used the term half-baked converts a few times. I don't see that as a negative thing, and that's because I am very familiar with the world of brownies. You know, you pull a pan of brownies out of the oven too early, it's just no big deal. You just put them back in the oven. People are more like brownies than they are souffles. 
pull a souffle out too early, you've ruined the souffle. Uh, brownies just go back in the oven. Now, how do you know? How do you avoid taking the brownies out of the oven? How do you know when they're not done? You stick a knife in them, right? And then you pull the knife out, and if there's any goo on the knife, you, you know they're not done. So what I'm advocating for here is just the active knifing of cultural Christians. <laughs> Somebody will clip that. It'll be, I'll get an email. What, what, what's the, what's the, staying with the metaphor, what's the knife? Well, for Paul here, it's just questions. Like, let's see what's going on inside, right? Let's see, let's see what's happening here. And so he actually asked them a couple questions. Look at verse two. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, I want to help you to see how the Bible handles uh, brownie knifing and how we handle brownie knifing. So when we do it, we're looking for, do you have all the facts you need? But when Acts, because Acts is this kind of between thing where it's like people are not converted, then they are converted, and, but are they really converted and so forth? This is sort of just the way the kingdom is. When, when, when the Christian leaders in Acts want to discern if someone is a believer or not, they ask, does he have the Spirit? And I could walk you through that. One day I do need to do that. I need to walk you through just over and over again all the times in Acts where the question is, uh, is this Gentile really part of us? And the answer is, do they have the Spirit? And it's like, yes. Okay, yeah, they're really part of us. So Paul's asking this question about the Spirit because this is how these folks thought about membership in the kingdom. The presence of the Spirit, you're in. The absence of the Spirit, you're not in. So that's why he's asking the question. So that'll inform you, like, how, what kind of questions should I ask when I'm talking to these cultural Christians? Ask questions that help you discern whether or not this person has the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical way of doing it. Now, Paul just overtly straight up asked them, do you have the Holy Spirit? But there are other ways to ask it as well. You, can, you could uh, maybe say to them, hey, I think I can see that you have a respect for Jesus. Could you tell me about your relationship with Jesus? Um, you could say, hey, uh, I see that you have some standards in your life and, and you're trying to be a good parent and so on and so forth. Do you, what do you do when you don't live up to your own standards? How do you feel about that? What, how do you process that? How does that click for you? How do you work through that? You know, sometimes the oldies are the goodies. There's a classic question that I think people actually don't realize is as helpful as it is. And that is the old standard, one day you're gonna die and assuming you stand before God, what's, what's the reason for entry? You can say that all sorts of different ways. But let me show you why that is a, is a Holy Spirit detector question. Because without the Spirit, a person's plan is themselves. That's the plan. My resources, my record, my righteousness. And when you ask someone, so what's the plan for death? What's the plan when you face God? And they say something like, well, I, hopefully 
I've been a good person. Something like that. Hopefully, I mean, compared to others, you know, <laughs> be surprised by how many times people will visit, will will will, uh, will respond with actual imagery of a scale. You know, hopefully, my good works outweigh my bad, so on and so forth. What's going on there is that's that's how the flesh would answer that question. That's how your flesh would answer that question. Sometimes you let your flesh still think that way, right? That's how the flesh answers that question. But the Spirit always makes much of Jesus. So even asking that question that you've heard a million times and maybe you think it's cheesy and too old-fashioned and so on, but even asking that question, if the answer is something like my resources, my, my, my righteousness, well, that's, that's evidence of one thing. But if the answer is Jesus could be evidence of another thing. So what Paul's getting at here is, do you have the Spirit? Are you His? Has God adopted you? Another way to think through this and practically interact is interact with people that may be cultural Christians, may be Christian Christians, is to ask yourself this question. Do I right now feel as freely to talk with this person about Christ as I would with one of my closest Christian friends. Like, it's not a bulletproof question, but I think sometimes if you'll pay attention to what you're feeling, what you're thinking as you're interacting with someone, you will find, I don't think this person really wants to talk about Jesus. Well, again, pretty good evidence for the lack of the Spirit. Uh, a fourth thing is, is just you can just help them see their caterpillarisms. In the text, uh, Paul says, hey, the thing you believe, it's a caterpillar. The John, John the Baptist thing, he wants you to believe in Jesus. You know, you, in any conversation you have with anybody of any substance whatsoever, you will hear caterpillars. For instance, it's really common for people to have a love for safety. And that love for safety is a gift from God. And if you didn't have it, you'd be in big trouble. God has given you a love or affection for safety so that you could not die when you're eight years old or whatever, you know? But that's a caterpillar, right? Because it's meant to make you see, is my soul safe? It's meant to make you see the safety that's available in Christ. So that you say, you know, nothing can hurt me because I'm in Christ. You'll find people who love achievement. And again, there's something to affirm there and say, that's wonderful. I, I think that that's great. The, the, the one who is slack in his work is the companion of him who destroys. It's great that you want to achieve. But Jesus asked a question that always gets at me when I'm thinking about this, and it's, what would it profit a man if he achieved everything but lost his own soul? Maybe they just love love. Maybe they love love. Maybe they love marriage. Maybe they love romantic love. Maybe they love humanitarian and brotherly love. Again, these are all great things. The fact that they appreciate these things is evidence of God's work in the world. But they are caterpillars. They're meant to translate into something bigger. Every single person who's ever come to me with marriage crisis needs to hear one thing above all. 
your marriage is an arrow pointing you to Jesus. When it's good, when it's bad, it's still pointing you to Jesus. Your marriage is a caterpillar. Jesus is the butterfly. I want you to imagine, I've already written, I've already pitched one children's book to you. Let's wrap up with a second pitch. A comedically absent-minded individual. So like me times 10, you know, an absent, like a ridiculously absent-minded individual. And he is on his way to a business meeting in California. And he flies out of Kansas City and he lands in Denver because you always have to land in Denver. And he's a little late and he, uh, the plane's a little late. He misses his connecting flight. Next flight isn't available for a number of hours. And so he starts killing time in the Denver airport, and he goes to Cinnabon and to Starbucks and then does some shopping and buys some magazines and a neck pillow. And he walks by Chili's because there's always a Chili's in every airport. He walks by Chili's, and he goes in there and has a nice meal, and then he settles in on a seat to watch some CNN with his neck pillow, his belly full of Chili's and cinnamon rolls, which is a total Kansas thing. Uh, and he's basically kind of just in this doped up, you know, like carb bliss. And what if he forgets that he's not home and he misses his connecting flight, his next flight? Because the whole weird thing about an airport is, is it's not a destination, but it's meant to feel like a destination in some respects. So what if someone on their way to California for a business trip. They do the connecting flight in Denver. They miss their first flight, and then they just start thinking that the airport is home. Well, I think the proper way to handle a person like that would be to say, hey, your bad news is this is not your home. Uh, you're kind of in a caterpillar mode right now. Good news is you are at the airport, and you just have one more flight to go. That sort of hopeful realism in discussing with people their souls, I think, is what this text is calling for. Paul's like, John the Baptist, huh? Great airport. Not a destination. That whole airport named John the Baptist International, it was designed to get you to Christ. And you have taken a nap and you've missed the flight but good news is, there's a flight right now. Let me help you get to the place you were supposed to get to when you started this journey. For communion, related text in John 10, Jesus says in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Supreme confidence, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father I want to encourage you to take a moment before you come up to participate in communion to thank God, not just for your salvation, but for the millions of things he did leading up to it.
I want you to understand that Jesus did not just buy the salvation of his people. He bought the journey to their salvation as well. Because he bought authority over heaven and earth. And only because of that, because all authority has been given to him under heaven and earth, can he tell his disciples in good conscience, go into all the world and make disciples. I've paid for every single piece of every single person's journey from step eight to step seven to step six to step and so on and so forth. So as you come, believer, to the table today and you celebrate the, the purchase that Jesus has made to redeem you from the pit, before you come, take a moment to consciously thank God. Not just that you got to the destination. That's brilliant and wonderful. But just take a moment to realize all he did. Millions of things you'll never know about this side of eternity to get you there. And then ask him, Lord, will you give me the faith to realize that you're doing that in my neighbor's lives? And then I would stop looking at them as they're not bread and start saying, yeah, but they're not dirt either. Would you give me faith to see you at work in the world? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for being sovereignly over everything. Thank you for conducting the symphony of creation to lead each one of us to hear the goodness of the gospel and to be redeemed. Lord, if there's maybe someone here today, uh, pretty common and should not be a shameful thing. Shouldn't be a shameful thing for someone to say, you know, I think I'm a cultural Christian. I, don't, I mean, I, I think I'm getting there, but I'm not sure that I actually have the spirit. I'm not sure I've actually, my heart's been transformed. Father, you know how much I hate the fact that that is ever perceived by anyone to be a shameful thing to admit. It's, it, it literally, it's just one more flight all literally been there one way or the other where we were awakened and new to our need for you so God if there's somebody here who's kind of feeling that way God, let them call upon the name of the Lord and Lord let them put their faith in you and not their faith let them put their faith that believe that you will answer their cry Lord give us all faith to see how you are actively work in the world. And Jesus, thank you, not just for not just for buying the destination, but for buying the whole journey. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come and partake of the table.